Dear Father, we're thankful for this record that you have given us. We're thankful that we can see your plans from beginning to end. And we're thankful that you have seen fit to give us special revelation of that uh, prophetic future, uh, but also of this historical past. Uh, we pray for understanding as we go through and do our best to understand in our feeble human minds. We thank you for the tools that you've given us to do that. Uh, we pray for guidance in the Spirit that we uh, seek your will. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, it never really does get old having Paul read those names. Just wait till we get to Genesis 14, and I'm going to throw him some real doozies. Maybe we'll find someone else to read for that week, huh? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, yeah, we're, we're making progress through Genesis 12. Uh, we'll start here with the main point, that rebellion finds its catalyst quickly in the new world. We already saw Noah's sin very quickly after the flood. And now we're going to see how fast things ramp up to what almost looks like before the flood. This will continue through this civilization, the civilization being from Noah's flood until the end of the tribulation period. But God will have his king and his kingdom. So what we're looking at this morning is Satan's attempt to put in his king in place of God's king. And that's why we're asking this question, who can save us? Because man is constantly trying to find his own savior. Man is always elevating something up that he can worship anything but God. And that is really the heart of this new world order, and it's really the heart of sin. No matter how far back you go, the history of sin is one of rebellion against God, seeking not God's will, but man's will, and that inevitably ends with man worshiping man, or man worshiping something that has been created. And so this morning we are looking at the sons of Cush. Now in your Bible, Cush has a C, not a K, and I assure you this is no more correct or incorrect, um, but I needed all Ks this morning, so it's Cush with a K. We're going to look at Cush's sons, and you'll notice that this is not one of Noah's sons, it's one of Noah's grandsons, but we get some, a fair amount of detail, um, especially his son Nimrod. That's what we want to focus on this morning. But we want to fill in the background detail, making sure not to skip any verses, because here we preach verse by verse. And so we'll look at the sons of Noah, the sons of Ham, and then focus in on the sons of Cush. We'll remember that the sons of Noah were three, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We looked at Japheth's line last time, and uh, I thought I was losing you guys. You guys were getting bored, so I didn't tell you all that I had to tell you about Japan, so we'll come back and do that one later. But I decided not to skip my interesting tidbits on the Olmec culture, so we will look at that this morning as well, because the Olmecs probably come from the Hamites. But these three sons are who we are focusing on in Genesis chapter 10, and that's because it was these three sons who populated the whole earth. No one on this earth came from anyone else besides these three men who all came from Noah. So no one on earth came from anyone but Noah. We also have in this record that Ham was the father of Canaan. We're going to look at Canaan next week. Canaan becomes the perennial enemy of Israel, living in the land, or the promised land. But there was this special curse that God pronounced on Canaan. 
you remember that God gave a prophecy through Noah to these three sons of how the cult, uh, the course of this civilization would go for these three people groups. And God focused in on Canaan, Ham's youngest son, in a curse, but that curse seems to have affected all of Ham's children, not just Canaan. However, Canaan is the focus and Canaan would be overthrown. They are all in some way subjected to the other two brothers. And so as we look at Ham, we see that there are four great sons who came from him, Cush, Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. We'll focus on these sons, but I liked this quote that I got. It was uh, written back in 1612, so excuse some of the orthography here. I'll read it so it's more sensical. What country soever the children of Ham had to possess, there began the ignorance of the true worship of God, the inventions of heathenism, and adoration of false gods and the devil. And so we will see that that is true wherever Hamite culture spread so did the false religions. At the end of this morning, we'll see how the Hamites really did spread all false religions throughout all of the world, becoming the mother of harlots. Because there's so much to go over in Ham's line, we're going to split this in two and just look at Cush and Put this morning. Next week, we'll look at Mitzrayim and Canaan. Now, there are a few places in the Old Testament where put is mentioned. Never is he a main player. In every case, he is an ally of other nations. So here we have him allied together with Ethiopia and the Lydians and Egypt, as Egypt was conquered under Pharaoh Necho by uh, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. But rather than going through and listing all these verses and its allies, I decided just to give you guys a map because maps are easy. So here we have one of those allies of Put was Ethiopia. Another ally was Lydia. They were allied with Tyre, which is one of Canaan's line. Allied with much of Arabia in many passages. They are allied with Egypt. And Nineveh of Assyria, which was originally of Nimrod, they're allied at times with Persia. Oops. And one thing we can glean from this is every ally that's ever mentioned, when they are allied with them, that ally is against Israel. Put, one of Ham's sons, always aligns himself with evil. This is kind of the sad state of Ham's line. Ham's line was a rebellious line. Now, when we look at where the Hamites went, we see that they mostly went to Western Africa. They'd probably traveled across the north and then down south. They make up the majority of the kingdom of Mali. And they probably even went further than Africa, even sailing across the Atlantic Sea and reaching South, uh, Central, and possibly even South America. They were probably the origins of the Olmec nation, which predated the Mayan nation. Of course, some of the best explanations for how the Olmecs got there has been aliens. And whenever we see the secular culture crying aliens, 
it's probably something biblical they don't want to admit. Here's a, a bit about how they identify the Olmec language. It was a mystery to linguists for centuries. They had all these writings. They didn't know how to interpret them. Usually we use a sister language to interpret an unknown language, or else we reconstruct the language that came before it in order to understand it. But they couldn't do that with the Olmec writing until somebody realized that when you put these glyphs, these hieroglyphs, into a syllabary giving them sounds. They match almost perfectly with the Berber languages of Northern Africa. In fact, they could read them intelligibly once they deciphered this. So here this says, for over 50 years there has been evidence that the Olmec people probably wrote their inscriptions in the Manding language and the Manding writers from North Africa called Libico-Berber. It was used to write the Olmec and Mayan languages. The view that Africans originated writing in America is not new. Scholars early recognized the affinity between Amerindian scripts and Mande scripts. Published an, or Raffinesque published an important paper on the Mayan writing that helped in the decipherment of the Olmec writing. In this paper, he discusses the fact that when the Mayan glyphs were broken down into their constituent parts, being their syllables, they were analogous to the ancient Libico-Berber writing. This language probably came from Africa. And who better to have it come from than Put? Now, we don't get any of Put's children, Mitzrayim, Canaan, and Cush. We get kids of theirs because they hung around the area. They interacted with Israel longer. Put immediately headed out west and even crossed the continent, and we don't get any of the children's names. They were too far away. They were not in contact with Abraham. And so this is the area of Put, Western Africa, and their linguistic heritage crossed over the Atlantic and landed in Central America. Yep, so they probably headed down there. You might ask how they got across the Atlantic. Grandpa Noah probably taught them how to build a boat, or perhaps Ham. Ham also helped build boats with Noah. They even have myths and traditions of boats. Boats crossing the Atlantic, but especially boats that helped their leaders survive a global flood. This is an Olmec relief on one of their temple walls. They also have a rich history that mirrors that of Africa and the Middle East. Here's a temple in Timbuktu. Actually, I think this is a library in Mali, Timbuktu. Here's a ziggurat in the land of Ur, one of Nimrod's lands. And these look a lot like the Olmec temples, the Olmec ziggurats. There is one of the oldest in the Yucatan Peninsula near Veracruz. Those older ones are a little bit more rudimentary, not because they lacked the skill to do it, but they're older. They're probably 500 years older than Chichen Itza, which is just a couple hundred miles north on the Yucatan Peninsula. Keep in mind, they probably scattered after building the Tower of Babel. 
Not only are they boat builders, but they are ziggurat builders. Now their writing is pretty interesting, and writing itself is pretty interesting after Babel. Because although they had spoken languages, they didn't have means of writing down their new language. There are 70 languages that come out of Babel, and as these people merge and intersect across the continents, and they can't speak with one another, how better to communicate than drawing a picture? If you just need to tell someone from a neighboring clan that doesn't speak the same language, there's good game out that way. How better to do that than draw a picture? Or perhaps drawing a map of where they can find food? We see these writings all over the place. And you know, culture hasn't changed that much. We still do this. It doesn't fascinate us these days. People try to communicate things by writing on walls. I kind of like this one. This was on my walk home from school every day when I lived in Cuenca, Ecuador. They communicate something and something about their culture. We see this in America as well. These are the petroglyphs in the Mojave Valley in Nevada. They're drawing pictures. They're letting each other know what's going on or else they're just leaving their mark. Now, secular science would tell you that the more rudimentary the drawing, the older and stupider the culture, and the more elaborate the drawings, the more advanced and intelligent the culture. But sometimes we just doodle on paper, and other times we make wonderful masterpieces. In fact, you might argue that the Renaissance had better art than we produce at all today. Their culture isn't technologically more advanced than ours, Sometimes you want to draw a picture that's going to last for a while to decorate something. Other times you're just trying to communicate something. The Egyptians even mixed these two, mixing their murals together with their writing system that early took on the form of pictures. Writing these pictures probably helps them communicate after Babel when they lost their language and gained a new spoken language. And these are copied in the Olmec culture. It starts with hieroglyphs, and it turns into written script. The same thing happened in the kingdom of Mali. Same thing happened in China. When they took their pictographs, they turned into characters. Japan takes it one step further and turns them into kana, and makes a syllabary out of it. We even did the same thing for the English language. We start with pictures. Those pictures take on meaning. Those pictures take on sounds. And soon we end up not with a syllabary, but a alphabet with phonemes. Language develops, but it always seems to start with just this drawing pictures, because how better to communicate when you can't talk to anyone who doesn't understand you? So for the descendants of Put, they went to northwest Africa and then south into Africa. They make up whatever is west of Libya, biblically speaking. So this would include Algeria, Morocco, Mauritania, 
Mali, and possibly even Central America. And now we move to Kush. Kush's region is a little narrower. It's going to mostly focus on the Arabian Peninsula. These sons of Kush were Sheba, Havilah, Sabta, Ra'ama, Sabtika, and Ra'ama had two sons that are listed for us, Sheba and Dedan. Now Cush went one of two places, and possibly even both. He was probably alive for a few hundred years and could easily have traveled. There seemed to be remnants of his name in Hindu Kush in northwestern India. But traditionally, he went down to Ethiopia, the ancient land of Nubia. His son Sabta was probably the originator of the Sabian peoples. These became the Sabian Arabs, who helped Muhammad conquer the region. You might even remember the name Havala. Back in the Garden of Eden, one of the rivers, the river Pishan, flowed around the whole land of Havala. Now here is a case where Cush is probably naming one of his sons after the land of Havala that was before the flood. Shem also does this. He'll name one of his grandsons Havala. But once again, they seem to have a different reason for doing this. Ham's line seems to have uh, to regret the loss of the land that they once had before the flood. Because not only does it take this name, the land of Havilah, where there is gold, gold that, or the gold of that land is good, and the bdellium, the onyx stone, are there. The river Gihon also flowed around the whole land of Cush. Cush's name also comes from the land before the flood. Assyria will become Nimrod's second kingdom between the rivers of the Euphrates and the Tigris. Now, none of these lands listed before the flood exist today, but the lands that exist today that are named the same thing have been named after those lands that were before the flood, probably by those people who came off the boat. And so we start to get this sense of Cush that, or this sense of Ham and his line that they kind of missed the way things were before the flood. Havilah's children went to Central Arabia and make up what is modern-day Saudi Arabia. Sabta went over to Sudan, ancient land of Nubia, and made up the ancient peoples of the Sabathans. Ra'ama went over to modern-day Eritrea, between Ethiopia and Sudan, right on the coast there. And his two sons, Sheba and Dedan, took either side of the coast, right near Eritrea, in modern-day Yemen and modern-day Ethiopia. 
once again, we do see all of these children allied with the kingdom of Tyre, which in Ezekiel is being lamented as it is about to be uh, destroyed. We see that Dedan traded in saddlecloth, and then the traders of Sheba and Ra'ama also traded with Tyre, and they paid for wares the best of all kinds of spices and with all kinds of precious stones and gold. They were part of Tyre's sea trade, being right there in a very important seaport. Unfortunately, for Saptica, there is nothing I can tell you. He's not mentioned again in scripture, and there doesn't seem to be any record of where his children went. This is one we uh, may just have to find out about in heaven. The only guess that anyone made in the books that I was reading this week is that they would have gone to southern Saudi Arabia and mixed in with Havilah's children. But now the text breaks out of its listing of children. And it tells us that it's actually left out a son. It hasn't told us everything yet. In fact, none of these lists claim to be complete. There are other daughters that we don't hear of, but there may as well be other sons. And here we get a hint that there was another son. Now, it seems that the purpose of listing the 70 nations, of which Nimrod is not part of, was to identify for us the 70 languages that came out of Babel. If the name isn't listed in Genesis 10, it probably did not become its own nation out of Babel. So Nimrod probably did not receive his own language, but he probably spoke whatever his father Ham spoke, or Cush, rather. It says, now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. So Nimrod is Cush's sixth, sixth son, uh, but he is apparently not his own language group. We're not told much about Nimrod. We're only kind of hinted early in Genesis about what his career was. And it says here that he is a mighty one on the earth. Now this might sound good to us, or it might sound good to secular culture at least, but this would remind us of the biblical language of the people before the flood. It says that these were mighty men who were of old and men of renown. Before the flood, this is speaking of the Nephilim. It's not speaking of the Nephilim after the flood. But these men gained control over other people, over other humans. And they acted in wickedness and evil against the plans of God. If we have to make a guess, an informed and logical guess about Nimrod, we can say that his... Uh, might on the earth is not a good thing. Then we see where his influence went, which cities he occupied, and we see that once again they are enemy nations of Israel. In fact, they are the perpetrators of false religion 
that ends up infecting Israel and many other surrounding cultures. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh and Rehoboth-ir and Kala and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. The great city here is probably referring to Nineveh. So not only was he opposed to God in his efforts, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now in the Greek Septuagint, which is an old translation of the Hebrew Bible, it translates before as against. He was a mighty hunter against the Lord or contrary to the Lord. Whenever God sets up leaders over nations, he sets up leaders like shepherds, not leaders like hunters. But this takes on a social context when we remember the Noahic covenant and how God had just given them animals for food. They were able to go hunt now. This would be a new sort of vocation that Nimrod could have taken, and he may have taken it too far, and it seems as if he did. Keep in mind, while Nimrod is building his nation and his power, we're in the midst of the Ice Age. We've just come off of Babel. All the animals that were there before the flood are off the ark, maturing and spreading to their own regions. And people are going to encounter now unpeopled lands that have animals. They're going to have big critters they need to take care of. Don't forget there were dinosaurs on the ark. There's going to be need for dragon slayers. In fact, this tradition of the knight in shining armor slaying a dragon may trace all the way back to Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. This is an Akkadian relief of Nimrod fighting a dragon. Nimrod's kingdom of Babel has as its icon dragons. What kind of hunter was Nimrod? He may have been a dragon slayer. This I just found interesting. Here are the Inca dino, dino stones that show men fighting and slaying dinosaurs. Or as they were known before the 1700s, dragons. There's a ton of these stones. So who knows what Nimrod's nation may have looked like. Either way, he amassed to himself a lot of clout among people because he was a mighty hunter, a new vocation, a vocation much like our legends of dragon hunters and dragon slayers. Now the Jerusalem Targums, an interpretation of the Hebrew Bible, seems to take this one step further, which may be warranted. It says in its commentary on this passage, he was powerful in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord, for he was a hunter of the sons of men. As he said to them, depart from the judgment of the Lord and hear the judgments of Nimrod. 
supplanting the place of God over the hearts of man. And you remember who did that first in the book of Genesis, Satan himself. And we, we remember that there is going to be an ant animosity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. We have here a seed of the serpent gaining control over men and establishing for himself a kingdom over the world. Therefore it is said as Nimrod, the strong one, strong in hunting and wickedness before the Lord. He is obviously in opposition to God. He has taken on the mantle of government, which has the prerogative to protect life by shedding blood. But it does not appear that he is interested in protecting life, but in gaining power by shedding blood. This is not the prerogative of a nation under the Noahic covenant. It is not to amass power by massacre. Now, Nimrod is well known to be a rebel, and this may, in fact, be how he got his name, whether it was a given name or a name attributed to him later. His name may have been Ninus. Nimrod means rebel. Here you've got the Hebrew base consonants, this mu, resh, and dalit in the red. This is the base pair for rebel in Hebrew. And so his name may mean he rebelled. What did he rebel against exactly? Well, he definitely rebelled against God, but it seems as if he is dead set on not letting this prophecy come true. That the son of Ham, Canaan, and by extension it appears the rest of his brothers, are in some way subjected to the children of Japheth and Shem. No wonder then that his great empire over the earth, or the first great empires over the earth were actually of Ham. This was a rebellion against God's prophecy. God says it will be one way, and by golly, Nimrod has to do it a different way. He, in essence, looks to God and says, no, not happening. He builds Babel. He establishes that kingdom, and then he goes and takes another kingdom, Assyria. The Hamites are going to rule Babel, Assyria, Egypt, and even Babylon. So we can agree with this Midrash statement. The wicked Nimrod, who incited the whole world to rebel against me, Jehovah, during his reign. This was the career of Nimrod. Nimrod's career mirrors Satan's career, or at least Satan's attempt at a career. Isaiah 14, talking about Satan, says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. And now in this prophecy, we get a report of what Satan said in his heart, what, was, what constituted Satan's rebellion against God. 
Now note these I will statements. I will is the sole prerogative of God. Only he can declare his will and have it come to pass. But what does he say? He says, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. This is the height of hubris, and this is the very germ of the idea that entered into Nimrod's mind. Just as Satan passed this rebellion from himself to Adam, so he is passing it from himself to Nimrod. Chafer says of this rebellion, too much importance cannot be attached to the truth that Lucifer's first sin, a willful ambition against God, which proposed the cosmos world system that we encounter today in this world, is the norm or pattern of all sin. All human beings acting independently who are not concerned to fulfill the divine purpose for them are reenacting the same sin. Their destiny is that of the devil and his angels unless they come under the saving grace of God. And his nation of Babel seems to have the same spirit about them. They said, come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into the heavens. And let us make for ourselves a name Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, this is sin. This is sinful. Often we think of sin as just doing something bad or perhaps not doing something good. Maybe you've even heard that sin is missing the mark. Its Greek word does mean, in fact, missing the mark. But missing what mark? It's straying from the will of God. That's the mark. When you put yourself in opposition to God's will, you're in sin. And that is exactly what is happening here in Babel. Nimrod and his kingdom have opposed God. They stand in opposition to him and they seek to amass a kingdom to themselves. Now, if you remember back about 10 months now to the very beginning of our Genesis study, what was God's purpose in creation? It was to build a kingdom and to make man so that man would rule over it, but not autonomously. That man would rule over this kingdom in relationship with God. This was God's purpose for Adam. This was God's purpose for Noah. This is God's ultimate purpose for Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ will rule over this world before it will pass away. But here, Satan is trying to put his own man in the place that God has prepared for his son, Jesus Christ. This is the course of this age, and this begins at Babel. And it continues all the way up through the end of this age. And so we take a look now at Nimrod's kingdom. We'll see the beginning of his kingdom, how it has influenced this entire civilization from the flood to the flames. 
and then how his kingdom will come to an end. Genesis 10, 10 through 12 lists all these different cities that he built. They can be broken down into two different regions. Some have proposed that Babel, the uh, Babel incident of Genesis 11 comes between these two buildings. I'm not quite sure of that. I think he was amassing power to himself before he was dispersed from Babel, and he fades into relative anonymity afterwards. He went to the land of Shinar, which is modern-day summer. He built Babel, which is Babylon. And then he builds Erech, or modern-day Uruk. And then Akkad, which became the great Akkadian dynasty after Nimrod's fall. And another city named Kalna, which hasn't been identified yet. Each of these cities were about 100 miles apart, and they were all along the Euphrates River. But that wasn't good enough for him. He is looking for domination. He goes and takes another nation. He takes over Assyria, which is ancient Asher even before Assyria. This is on the Tigris River. He builds the city of Nineveh. If you've read the book of Jonah, which I'm sure all of you have, you'll remember Nineveh and just how evil it was. And then he expands Nineveh into these satellite cities, uh, somewhat like a tri-state or a quad-state area. Nineveh expands to Rehoboth-ir, Kala, and Rezin, which are all in the same general vicinity as Nineveh. And so you have Nimrod slowly working his way up from Babel up through Akkadia and into Assyria, perhaps even threatening to take over the Persian or the Elamites. So to be consistent with our other maps, this was the trajectory of Nimrod's conquering, of Nimrod's efforts to make a global government with himself as the head. And it truly was a beautiful city, this is a picture of the um, of Nineveh of Acadia. This is what it looks like today, or the land of Babel, his capital, or the Hanging Gardens in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. Today, it's kind of a desert wasteland. The ruins are about all that's left of it. But it was truly an amazing feat. And it's no wonder that he was amassing a great influence and that this influence remained over this world for millennia. All of those great empires lasted for over a thousand years under Ham. But now we want to see exactly what kind of an influence he has had over the rest of the world. Specifically, his influence seems to do with his family. This cult religion that was created in Babel that then spread together with all of those who left Babel. And this is called the mother-child cult. 
Many sources cite the fact that Nimrod probably had a wife named Semiramis and a son named Tammuz, and a religious cult formed around these two. Tammuz was killed as a child and was brought back to life. So legend has it. They began to worship Tammuz and his mother, the life giver, and it spread from Babylonia into Asia and India, even becoming a staple in the Catholic Church, the Madonna and Child, actually biblically does not represent Mary and Jesus. But as they spread into other cultures and found they already have a concept of a mother and child savior, they adopted that, such as in South America when they arrived. They thought this is easy headway. We'll identify Mary and the Son, Jesus Christ, with these gods or goddesses of the pagan religions. The Israelites had names for these. Baal probably came from Nimrod. And then Tammuz and Ashtoreth being the goddess Semiramis. The Phoenicians had their god El, the sun Bacchus, and the queen Astarte. In Babylon, it was Belus and Tammuz and Ishtar. Assyria was Ninus and Hercules and Beltus. Greece, Zeus, Dionysus, and Aphrodite. In Rome, Jupiter, Attis, and Diana. In Egypt, Ra, Osiris, and Isis. In India, Vishnu and Krishna and Isi, in China, Panku, Yi, and Hango, Mexico, Tadal, Quetzalcoatl, and Quadlupique, and in Scandinavia, the god Odin, with his son Balder, and Freyda, the queen. No matter where you went on the earth, this mother-child cult appears. There's only one way for it to appear everywhere. It would have had to have been localized in one place before everyone was spread from that one place. We see it even affected Israel, which isn't surprising seeing how close it is to Israel, but we actually see Tammuz himself mentioned. In Ezekiel 8, when Ezekiel is being shown the destruction of Jerusalem for their idolatry, the angel who is showing him says, Son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark? Each man in the room of his carved images. For they say, the Lord does not see us, and the Lord has forsaken the land. And he said to me, yet you will see still greater abominations which they are coming. Then he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north, and behold, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. He said to me, Do you see this, son of man? Yet you will see still greater abominations than these. As Israel dived deeper and deeper into their abominations and idolatry before God finally pulled them out of their land for covenant disobedience and had them in exile in none other than Babylon and Assyria, 
for the very idolatry that they had gathered from those cultures. In other words, God is saying, you want idolatry, I'll give you idolatry. You'll be a slave to it. So how did this spread through all the earth? It's not revealed explicitly for us until the end of the book of Revelation, which reveals the end of this civilization. And we're told that it's a mystery. A mystery in scripture is not something that we don't get to understand, but it's something we've never been told before this moment. That before scripture here reveals it, we didn't know. And so here in the book of Revelation, the last record to the church, we get this great mystery told to us. Revelation 17.1 says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations, and of the unclean things of her immorality, and on her forehead a name was written, which was a mystery, and that was Babylon the Great, the mother of all harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. The mystery here is not that Babylon was a great city, but that Babylon was the mother of all harlotry, of all idolatry, of all false religion that is throughout all of the earth. That no matter where you go, her influence has touched that culture because every culture on earth has sprouted out of the dispersion at Babel and they carried with them the same religious cult that was present in that day. And in chapter 17, verses 15 and 18, the woman and the waters that she sits on are identified for us so that we don't have to guess what it means. He said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits, they are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the woman who you saw is the great city, which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now you remember at the end of each of Ham or of uh, Noah's son's lines, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, it says, they each went out into their nations according to their own languages, by their own tribes, into their own lands. This has been the influence of Babel over every culture. The woman who you saw is the great city, which reigns over the kings of the earth. And so we see that Babel was truly the germ that created all of these other great cultures throughout the earth. When we think of culture, Often we think of something positive in society today, but really culture is how man organizes himself apart from God. Culture is not something to be aspired to. That's why we as Christians take pride in being counter-cultural. We go against the grain because the grain of this world is set its heart against God. We go against the grain so that we can follow in God's will and not the will of this earth and of these two great kingdoms that are on either side 
of this civilization. Satan thinks he's winning. Satan thinks he's building his kingdom today. In fact, a great kingdom will arise in the end of this civilization, and it will even appear at first to be some sort of great religious system, some sort of moralistic religion. Unfortunately, there are far too many churches today who are occupying themselves with what they call kingdom building. There is no kingdom that we have been instructed to build. In fact, there will be no kingdom in this civilization that is anything but the kingdom of the Antichrist. So as the church attempts to build the foundations of this great kingdom, what will arise from it is not God's kingdom, which is not built by human hands, but the foundations for the very kingdom of the false Christ. Our admission, our job, our duty is not to build God's kingdom. That's what God is doing. He has told us to glorify him, to edify the saints, studying his word, being in fellowship, and to evangelize the lost. He has not told us to build a kingdom. In the end, Satan will put forth his Messiah, the one that he wants to put over the nations of this earth, over the hearts of man. And unfortunately, many will follow after him. But this is not the king that we are waiting for. This is not the kingdom that we are waiting for. The kingdom we are waiting for does not appear until after the tribulation period, until after the current kingdom system has been put away for good. Revelation 18, 4 through 6 tells us, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven. Isn't that ironic? She wanted to build a tower into the heavens. And she has. She succeeded. But it wasn't a tower of brick and stone. It was a tower of sins that she has built up into the heavens, and God has remembered her iniquities. And so he says, pay her back, even as she has paid. Give back to her double according to her deeds. In her cup, which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. God plans to destroy the system of Babel. And he does so, not with the final kingdom that the Antichrist will build, No, he utterly destroys that kingdom. He rips it to pieces. He crushes it to dust. Not one fleck of it will be left in his kingdom. His kingdom is wholly made of his own hands, his own son. Daniel 2.44 tells us that in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. But it will itself endure forever. So Daniel says, Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver, and the gold, which represented all the kingdoms that come out of Babel, 
the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Not this civilization, but the next will boast of the great kingdom of Jesus the Messiah. We look forward to that day when he will reign in glory over the millennial mountain. On the throne of David, which belongs to him. With a new temple. And Israel restored to her land and the church ruling over the rest of the world. Ezekiel 43.7 tells us, this is uh, Ezekiel's vision here, when the angel shows him the temple that will be built in the next civilization, not this world, but the next world. He said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. And the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their harlotry and by the corpses of their kings when they die. By setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost beside my doorpost, with only the wall between me and them, and they have defiled my holy name by their abominations, which they have committed. So I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their harlotry and the corpses of their kings far from me, and I will dwell among them forever. Israel will be restored in that kingdom, and they will dwell together with God, just as has been promised for them in their kingdom, since it was founded when the Shekinah glory rested in the tabernacle of Moses. There's also a, pr a promise for us in the church. Speaking to the church of Thyatira, John writes, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. This holding fast in this crown speaks of rewards in heaven, something that can be lost. But the next is something that cannot be lost. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. In other words, he's going to write the address, not on the inside of your jacket, but right on you so you can't get lost. This is your new home. This is not to the one who holds fast. This is to the overcomer. There is only one way to overcome, and that is by faith. You don't do the overcoming. Jesus has already done all of the overcoming that is possible. You can't add one ounce to what he has already done. You can't add one ounce to the blood which he has shed. It would only take away from the perfect sacrifice that he has made. And so 1 John 5, 4 defines for us an overcomer. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Faith alone saves with nothing else. Faith alone secures for you 
a spot in the kingdom. Not the kingdom of this world, not the kingdom of Nimrod, not in the culture of Babel, but in the kingdom of Jesus the Messiah where he will reign in perfect might. And so our takeaway this morning, rebellion and sin are the course of this world. But this world and its ruler will not succeed in thwarting God's plan for those who he has called. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful that you have seen fit to show us beginning to end your plan for this world. We, thankful, we are thankful that we are not left wondering where we see the darkness of the course of this world. We also see the light of the morning star on the horizon. We pray ever so more this morning. Come quickly, Lord. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.